Public Intellectual is brought to you by the Forever Dog Podcast Network. You can find my show and more original work at foreverdogpodcasts.com. And Public Intellectual now has a Patreon. If you've been enjoying these weekly episodes, you can consider donating at patreon.com slash publicintellectual. You give us money and we'll give you some stuff. That stuff, inevitably, includes a tote bag. But we're working on other ideas and if you have a certain desire, let us know your desires and we will we'll try to work them out. So again, patreon.com slash public intellectual. Soon after the election, there was a woman writer on Twitter, and I will spare her the humiliation of being called out by name on a very minor podcast with a limited audience, saying that if you pre-order her book, which is completely unrelated and completely mediocre, she'll donate a dollar of the proceeds to Planned Parenthood. And I thought, just donate your money to Planned Parenthood and don't try to use the election of Donald Trump to promote your fucking work. I thought it would be a blip, something that would die out after a couple of weeks and everybody calm down, but little did I know that every writer in the world was going to start using the election to self-promote, whether by donating percentages of book sales to some charity they have never before given a shit about, or performing very minor acts of civic engagement and crow about their bravery and heroism on Twitter or suddenly becoming spokespeople for movements they have nothing to do with. So welcome to the hashtag resistance. It would make me less angry if these writers weren't taking the attention and money and work from the people who have actually been working to change our toxic culture for years. It's funny how that works. Feminism is popular, but the women who were toiling away in the field for years did not ascend when the topic did. A bunch of pretty white girls did. People write very earnestly about the prison industrial complex these days, but a new book by Angela Davis, who has been writing on this very subject for decades, barely got any notice. But if there is someone I look to to skewer pomposity and self-satisfaction, it's Neil Pollock, ever since the greatest living American writer pieces years ago. So I wanted to talk to him about the hashtag resistance and whether he, as a property-owning straight white male, is living under tyranny. I've already started recording, so... I I, I figured as much. Um, are you a writer against Trump? Um, trademark. Well, I'm a writer and I'm against Trump to the extent that it matters. Uh, But no, I'm not a writer against Trump. I think that that's just, that's just a marketing platform and that's not, um, a platform I'm particularly interested in, in standing on. We had talked about this, um, nasty women anthology uh that's coming out in a couple months um with all women writers writing against trump um and there's some sort of big resist 
uh, sticker or banner on the on the cover. And I, I was Googling today to try to find it, um, the, the you know, the, who published it and when it's being released. And um, I found five other anthologies called Nasty Women. Um, five separate anthologies. Yes. There was one that's poetry only. Um, there's one that's like bad hombres and nasty women. There was like a Kickstarter for another one. And it just kept going. Um and it does feel like the the so-called nasty women are the ones that are that are most benefiting from the Trump administration. Oh, I wouldn't say that they're the ones most benefiting. I think that there's some you know construction companies in the Southwest that are doing pretty well. You know, there's there's some Russian oligarchs who are probably getting getting some nice payouts. And Trump, you know, Trump himself is benefiting quite quite handsomely. Um, but if you want to like, if you want to talk about like who in the, you know, literary community as a, yes. uh, is benefiting, other than maybe some uh, a few random Breitbart writers, then I would say yeah, that that particular subsection of writers is, if not financially benefiting, then at least benefiting from followers and readership, which in turn leads to speaking gigs and panels. And uh, you know, conferences and and that sort of thing, sort of the sort of the side benefits of the literary literary career. And there's definitely been this trend of writers, you know, male and female writers, uh, making careers for themselves off of anti-Trump sentiments. And so, right. and I don't think that's necessarily wrong. I just think it's kind of funny that they they think that they're these avatars of the revolution, wherein in reality they're just a a reasonably well marketed political opposition right it's it's wokeness as as a marketing strategy um because a lot of these these writers um from what i can tell um you know became woke on election day um they weren't necessarily sort of politically oriented or um interested in sort of culture beyond New York or LA or wherever it is that they're living. It really was just, um, they kind of saw, they saw a way to, um, manage it, I guess a little bit. Well, I don't know if it was deliberate or not. Or not. I mean, I think that there, I, I wonder what some of these writers would have done if Hillary Clinton had won. I mean, would they have just gone to work at the white house? <laughs> it's hard to say, Maybe. right? Maybe, but I, but, but, um, you know, and keep in mind, I'm coming at this from someone who supported Hillary Clinton and voted for her, and I was not, I'm not a leftist, you know, I'm pretty much like, a, <laughs> I, I, I'm a boring centrist Democrat, you know, I'm so I'm not, I'm not coming at this from some sort of radical point of view, it just kind of, it, 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 I, I, but my job, if I, ha, if I have one, is to make fun of literary pomposity, and suddenly, as soon as Trump was elected, I felt like these, this, a lot of people were just driven insane and some people figured out a way to either channel their insanity through writing and making money off of the writing or how to um, market themselves in such a way that they could profit off other people's surprise that Clinton didn't win. So, right. so, you know, right. So the first, you know, and the first person through the gate was, uh, was Lauren Duca who mm-hmm. wrote an essay for teen Vogue. I don't remember the exact content, but it was something about how we can't let ourselves be gaslit by Donald Trump or that we're all being gaslit by Donald Trump. And, and, you know, know, basically describing him as like an abusive boyfriend. And, um, and she, that got her, uh, uh, 
gig getting berated by Tucker Carlson on Fox News. And she's done an extremely savvy job of making herself the avatar of the revolution. As far I, I, and I'm not sure because I don't like to tune into that channel very often, but I, I think she got a book deal out of it. She certainly mm-hmm. has been getting lucrative writing gigs out of it, and she continues to appear on TV. And um, you know, she gets thousands. And no matter what she says, she says, especially if it's anti-Trump, gets thousands of retweets. So you know, it's kind of the model for the uh, for the literary career, as they as they like to say in the age of Trump. Yeah, the Lauren Duca, um, uh, Jessica Valenti, you know, there are a couple um, of these sort of white women uh, who have, you know, I guess coming out of Hillary Clinton support in in this way of positioning themselves as um, if you're against Hillary Clinton, then you're um, a misogynist. And so then the whole thing with the with Hillary Clinton losing the election became an, an issue of misogyny and um, and so resisting hashtag resisting became a, a, a sort of feminist um, uh, revolution that we're all supposed to be a part of and so it's being led right. by these very sort of you know um, bland pretty white girls um, who show up on who show up on TV and are doing a pretty good job with um, uh, making, making themselves. Yeah, they're making a career uh, of being anti-Trump. And, you know, it's not just, believe me, it's not just bland, pretty white girls. There's also bland, pretty white guys. There's mm-hmm. uh, there's there there are black and Latino uh, writers and pundits who are um, making a good career for themselves doing this as well. There are there are conservatives who are who are anti-Trump who are making a good career out of this. So, you know, it's been it's been kind of a boon in some ways for for certain careers. And I just I don't know, but what what gets me is that it's like the entire literary and journalistic industry has just become this um, anti-Trump uh, sounding board. Like every movie, every TV show, every book is something something for the age of Trump. You know, it's right. like it's it's our suddenly it's our it's our only cultural reference point. And you know, we've talked we talked about this before. You know, first through the gate, the first people to um, you know to talk about how the republic was in danger. Uh, where it was this group called Writers Against Trump. I started mm-hmm. seeing these tweets from Writers Against Trump, and I'm like, and, and immediately, even though I was against Trump, it kind of occurred to me, like, who cares that the writers are, are against Trump? It's like, <laughs> it's like, oh no, now that the writers are against him, surely he will fall, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I was, it, it, and, uh, and so these anthologies are, are, are a natural outgrowth, and they, they will certainly be lining those bargain baskets out in front of the Strand um, bookstore for, for years to come. Yeah, and I think it's, well, it's good for this particular kind of writer if we believe that we're now living under tyranny and that the age of Trump is a distinct um, era of our history that um, that it's not a continuation of sort of policies put in place by George W. Bush and continued into the Obama administration. Like this is somehow some sort of monumental break in America and this idea of America and what our values and what we stand for rather than, no, this is kind of just like the the grossest version of it, the most visibly disgusting um, manifestation of what America has kind of always been about. 
one could even say the purest manifestation, you know, sure. <laughs> at, 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 like the, the, the ultimate distillation of, of the true American character or whatever. I mean, I, and I, I don't know. I mean, I live in Texas. I've lived in Texas on and off for 15 years. So I don't, there's just, I'm not, I don't like everything that's going on at, at all, but right. I'm hardly surprised by it. And, and I'm I'm not as terrified as as some people. Maybe because I'm a you know I'm a middle class white guy, but I, I just also feel like it's because I I'm not living in an, an illusion, <laughs> you know. Right. Yeah. I mean, do you think part of that comes from not living in um, New York or L.A. Like any you know like I because I or, come from Kansas, I feel like yeah. Like I, I, I knew I knew about this stuff before. <laughs> right. I grew up in Arizona, um, and I've lived in Texas for a good chunk of my adult life. So so I you know, Arizona was the birthplace of this modern right wing revolt um, uh, that has culminated in Donald Trump. And uh, you know Texas is, has always been kind of a fertile breeding ground for it. so so, a lot of the stuff I hear just sounds like stuff I've heard my whole life. Um, right. It doesn't mean I agree with it, but it also doesn't mean that uh, I'm surprised by it. So yeah, so the people I, a lot of people I know from New York or LA or the Bay Area or Chicago or Seattle, you know, the the the, the places you would expect people to, of of good sense and reason to live um, are 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 completely appalled and terrified, and uh, I just. And sounding the warning in a way that is, is feels inappropriate to the situation, not like people are getting deported in cruel ways. We should stop that, or the the prison population is growing. We need to, do, you know, the prison industrial complex is growing. We need to do something to stop that. It's like the republic is in danger. Sure, you know, and it started with that essay, the the Masha Gessen essay, saying the ten ways to know the autocrat is spying on you i don't know what it was called but you know what i'm saying yeah. believe the, believe the autocrat when he says what he says and you know it's just like there's this paranoia among the literary set and you know she's like a she's not an obscure writer she's on the board of the of, of pen uh an organization that I, i'm also a dues paying member of and it's just like it just kind of represents the mainstream writerly view that like suddenly we're all being spied on by the kgb right i mean the subtitle of the piece was rules for survival mm. and and it was in the new york review of books so it's not it wasn't in a um you know a lefty marginalized publication like you know i love the baffler but if it were in the baffler it'd be a different thing i um, I, I, I think that i think just the dividing line between the baffler and the new york review of books these days is, is probably not as wide as you think but yeah really you but, think so well in terms of readership anyway i'm just saying like the um yeah, but that's a more. It is a sort of more staid, respectable imprint for sure. Um, and yeah, so it's like the New York Review of Books saying, uh, what, "What was the subtitle again?" Rules for survival. Yeah, rules for survival. The new the readership of the New York Review of Books. I was like, <laughs> just I don't know. One retreat to Montauk for the weekend. You know. <laughs> You know, it's, it's just or, you know, the New Yorker is constantly. David Remnick is booming out these these desperate, you know, these desperate essays. You know, make making it sound like um, that the, the White House is is literally about to be burned to the ground. Um, 
constantly terrified, you know, in between mm-hmm. his prof- his profiles of, Ma- of of his old chum Maggie Haberman. Um, so you know, it just I don't know. I feel like the literary elite, which I guess I'm I'm, I'm a part of. I I, I don't I don't feel particularly <laughs> elite, but you know, Barack Obama was a lot of things, but to the writers, he was one of them, right? He was the sure. most li- the most literary president we've ever had. He's an excellent writer in his own right, and he's a voracious reader. I mean, the uh, the week he left office, he had Dave Eggers, Zadie Smith, and Colson Whitehead over for lunch, you know? Yeah. That, that was one of the last things he did. So that shows you where his priorities were, which is fine. I mean... I've had lunch with all those people as well, uh, <laughs> not for a long time, but you know, and, and they're all they're all very, um, very uh, good eaters. But um, <laughs> as far as I can tell, as far as I remember, you know, mm-hmm. people of good good taste in conversation. But Donald Trump isn't having Zadie Smith over for lunch. So, you know, he has Ted Nugent over for lunch. So, right. uh, um, so sort of that. So that, that, that illusion that writers were somehow at the center of the culture, which Obama perpetuated and exemplified, has, has evaporated. So it's no wonder that everyone is so freaked out. It's like the, the truth has been revealed. Right. It, but it was such a short illusion. I mean, I can't... I'm, has it even been since, what, post-war literature... Uh, the 60s and 70s that that writers were even a part of sort of um, the cultural heart of America. They've been, I don't know, maybe everybody just loved Obama so much because they felt um, seen again very, very briefly. Um, You know, like Michael Chabon holding fundraisers and and everybody trying to get invited to those things and and that sort of thing was happening. um, Well, well, exactly. It was like the apotheosis of literary power in America. I think that I think that uh, there's there's no way to to doubt that. I mean, you know, the writers were put on a pedestal. Our president was a writer. It it Mm -hmm. actually it actually happened. You know, there's this uh, talk. Ta-Nehisi Coates has has a new book coming out called Eight Years We Were in Power, right? And obviously mm-hmm. that are, refers to um, African Americans being in power and 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 and, and subtitled an American tragedy. And of course, when you think about Obama to Trump from that context, it's a tragedy. But also, Eight Years We Were in Power kind of refers to this, you know, literary class, the NPR class, mm-hmm. uh, that the cultural elite, um, and they they set the agenda, they set the tone, and um, I don't think literature was any better for it at all, but but it no. certainly was. The parties were um, more lavish, and you know, the writers were getting invited to stuff that they previously hadn't been getting invited to. Right, because it is so the uh, literary elite that was in power, not it wasn't the poor African Americans who were in power. The, that we is very. Um, Troubling, I, I, I think, and and it's certainly he's opened himself up to a lot of criticism online that I've seen, um, with people being angry at the title, um, because it's only a sort of privileged position. Um, certainly, the poor did not do so great under the Obama administration. Um, no. um, but yeah, I mean, you, you sort of said um, when we were talking about uh, this subject, 
you know, everybody wants to pretend that it's Warsaw in 1937 um, rather than actually look at um, what, what the actual situation is. You know, everybody sort of, oh, well, it, it's always good to punch a Nazi. Um, and, and the sort of social media posturing, which is mostly, first of all, done by people who, who would never punch a Nazi. Uh, you know, they don't go out very much. But also, um, it's that idea that we, that they know who the enemy is, that because we've had Nazis before, now we, now our idea of evil will be, it'll be recognizable to us in, in this sort of cartoony kind of way. Um, right. And that writers are the ones who are, will be the first to recognize it, identify it, and stop it through their words. Yes. Yes. And, you, you know, and so, you know, when you think there, there, there was a, obviously a lot of profound literature to come out of Nazi Germany after it was over. Sure. You know, Elie Wiesel wasn't writing Night in the Camps. I don't, maybe he was, I don't remember, but, I'm, but it wasn't published then. You know, um, what, Arthur Kessler didn't publish Darkness at Noon in the 50s or, or you know, um, I'm trying to, uh, Solzhenitsyn, you know. Mm-hmm. Wasn't may have been writing the Gulag ar- Archipelago on on the on, on the back of uh, you know uh, 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 on on concrete or something, but it was it certainly wasn't published until this, until much later. So it's like to think that like literature is somehow the savior, our, sa- our, our savior against this new American fascism. <coughs> excuse me, if that really is what's going on, it, it's, it's just absurd. So. Right, it's the the chronicles after. It's not, it's not um, the Durable. the sort of right Durable. and the and the writers that we think of as being very important uh, writing about Nazi Germany um, mostly died or um, yeah were in exile et cetera et cetera and and wrote the, the stuff after. It wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't a sort of in real time. That's journalism. Well, that's that's a different. That's a different thing. Right. Well, journalists, I, I'm, I'm kind of lumping it all together, like literary writers, journalists, TV showrunners, screenwriters, like everyone's kind of all lumped together now. You know, you have you, you have that, uh, you know, look at that ludicrous thing, a, a kerfuffle about the shows about the the alternate reality of the Confederacy still being around with that sure. HBO Confederacy. So that's all part of it. Like everyone's trying to come up with like their ultimate statement about the way we live now. Um, and it, and nobody has any idea what's going on. I don't know. It's, it, it, there's just a lot of pomposity and posturing. I think about sometimes, um, I don't know if you remember this, but when, um, when Milo, uh, Yannanopoulos got his, got that book deal, I think it was with a random house imprint. He, you know, there, everyone was outraged that, that someone so gauche as, as Milo w- would get a book deal. And yeah, I mean, he's a you know, repulsive figure with some, some, weird and disturbing ideas but yeah that hasn't stopped people from getting books published in the past across the political <laughs> across the political spectrum and so sure. i remember roxanne gay um made a huge public stink in, in pulling out of her book contract with with mm-hmm. that publisher even though it was a completely different you know milo was with some weird obscure right-wing imprint and she was with a more conventional imprint but she she uh, dumped her book deal and everyone was praising her for her heroism and I was like, mm-hmm. you're really going to leave $150,000 on the table over Milo? 
really? You know, and and, and then they pulled the book, the, the Milo book deal a week later anyway. You know, so it, it's just kind of like, stop trying to be the hero of the revolution. There, There isn't a revolution. Um, plus, uh, sure, she left that book deal on the table, but she, I'm sure she picked up one just as lucrative somewhere else. I mean, she's if a not, hot commodity. If not, if not more so, if not more sure. lucrative. <laughs> Maybe she was just trying to get a better deal. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I, I wouldn't want to play poker against her. <laughs> you know, <laughs> she's a she's a savvy operator, and that's the thing. It's like people who aren't in the business don't realize that their their literary heroes are mostly just they're mostly just playing a game. You know, they're just they're they're mostly just playing the sh- a shell game with a whatever money's available out there. It's what, uh, Terry Southern called it the quality lit game um and uh, you know he played it with various degrees of uh of uh skill during his career but you know the rules change a little bit but at the end of the day the the game is about trying to get publicity and squeeze money out of these corporations and uh you know goes going back to what we were talking about before the writers who are getting the book deals and who are getting the speaking gigs and who are getting the anti-trump essays published you know, they're the ones who are playing the game effectively. Right. Am I being, yeah, too, I, am I, am I being too cynical about this? I don't, I feel like that's what's going on. I don't think you're being too cynical. I think, you know, part of me, when the Trump uh, thing happened and then it sort of became very fashionable very quickly to to write and talk about issues like the um, deportation of uh, that's going on with, with ICE and the prison industrial complex and so on and so forth. Issues that advocates have been trying for decades to get people to give a shit about. Um, so part of me is just sort of relieved that it's part of the conversation and we're, we're having it and we're looking at it finally. And then, you know, if it takes... Um, electing a lizard person or whatever uh, in order to do it. Right. I guess that's a, that's a okay trade off on, on that level. Um, but at the same time, the people who are profiting off of this um, sort of sudden awareness of how the world actually works um, that I'm cynical about because it, it isn't the long-term advocates who are getting the book deals. It's the people who a year ago, uh, realized that they could kind of um, use this rising um, awareness to further their careers if they sort of aligned themselves politically in the right way. You know, like somebody was, there was a New York Times article about Katy Perry and how woke she is right now and how she had this awakening. I was like, no, she just saw what people were talking about and who was sort of, who's selling albums right now. It, it's people with a sort of political um, edge to their music and who's selling uh, personal essays and and, um, and so on right now. It's people who are filtering it through political awareness. Right. She was, And she didn't just have an awakening, Jessica. She had a sexual awakening. Oh, well, that's nice for her. I'm like, well, <laughs> I, 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 I'm, I'm, I've been hoping for one of those for a while. I know. God, when is... Oh. When's a what does a girl got to do? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What's a guy got to do for that matter? But um, yeah. So, I mean, Katy Perry is like the, uh, you know, a prime example of this, although she's not a writer or a songwriter. But yeah, it's, that, that's sort of, 
she's like a, lu- a ludicrous pop example of it. You know, because you know, you and I both know that at the end of the day, the literary stakes are are always very small. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know. <laughs> I mean, it, 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 it's like uh, it's like political infighting in in, in the uh, world of opera. But at the same time, you can get a six-figure book deal yeah. if you're yeah. Roxane Gay. Yes, or any number of other people, um, and uh, yeah, that's true. So there's there, there's money there's money to be had, and there's you know there's always. I guess, like, for me, like, I've had this, I've been a professional writer for a while, 20, 25 years, something like that, and I, my, my first book came out 17 years ago, and I, I've just, I've come to realize that there are sort of accepted opinions in the literary world that really cannot be questioned, or else mm-hmm. you're going to be in trouble. Right. Um whether or not you're, you know, I mean, yes, if you're a, a, if you're like a truly great writer, you can get away with anything. But most most writers aren't truly great. They're, you know, like me, like competent, um, and or and, and or amusing or or something, you know, or, or something along demographically suited to a certain readership, whatever it is. And so, so you you don't want to step outside that bound. Like for for instance, when you had that, uh, remember that Amazon Hachette kerfuffle from a couple of years ago that everyone got so worked up about. Um, yeah. how, how I, I think that was, I'm sure, resolved for maximum profitability for both corporations. But I was being published by Amazon at the time, and I, I found myself, and I was like, and I was saying publicly, I'm like, you know, really, it's not that bad, guys. <laughs> 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 and that's basically was my whole argument. I'm like, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's no big deal. They're not. They're not just. They're they're selling thousands and thousands of your books, and they're getting new writers involved, and everything's fine. And and I, you know, I lost friends, people who I thought were friends, because of that. People would like literally shut me out. You know, unfriended me on Facebook, blocked me. I wasn't even being typically obnoxious about it. I was just kind of stating facts. I remember I saw Stephen Colbert, who was a Hachette public published author, on his on mm-hmm. his show. There was an Amazon package, and he stuck both his hands up through the package and extended his middle fingers. And I'm like, yeah. I'm like, you're no more or less a corporate shill than I am. You know, Hachette <laughs> you know, isn't a, like a little indie publisher. Who are you? Right, saying? it's an enormous, it's enormous con- part of a conglomerate. Yeah, it's yeah. I'm like, who, who, are you, who are you standing up for? And you know, and 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 he had writers on the show, and they would like they would go on and on about how terrible Amazon was, and and I'm like, I, I kind of feel I feel like Amazon's pretty value neutral. You know, it's like it's like complaining about the sun. <laughs> yeah, I, I never understood the kind of um, boogeyman Amazon thing. Or even the boogeyman Barnes and Noble thing, mm-hmm. um, yeah. when, when that was sort of the the, the Amazon of its time, um, you know. I, I, I was treated incredibly poorly by numerous independent bookstores, including Book People here in Austin, where I live, and you know, uh, uh, books books. When I had a book come out and was being published by Amazon, bookstores refused. Bookstores that I had been working with for de- like more than a decade, doing events, mm-hmm. bringing dozens, if not hundreds of people into their store, were, were refusing to book me for events. You know? I mean, am I the biggest name writer in the world? No, but, you know, I can I can get you 50 people in the store on a Wednesday night if, if, if 
you know, if I get one piece of press, so it's like, what are you doing shutting me out? And the answer is that that sort of, there's a sort of accepted conventional wisdom in the literary world about what should be and what shouldn't be. And if you buck it, then, then you're not part of it. Right. And there's also, well, I mean, this is not as um, relevant to book people, but if you're, if you're published by small publishers, independent bookstores are not necessarily your friend. Um, they have limited space. They don't tend to, um, you know, the independent bookstores in Brooklyn particularly have almost zero small press titles. It's all sort of conglomerate um, big name publishers because they have limited space and they need to pay the rent and sell what people are, is already part of the conversation. Um, people who have a, sort of an obscure career, Amazon and Barnes and Noble are places that actually will stock sort of these high risk titles um, that those motherfuckers are your, are your dearest friends a lot of the time. And it's terrible to say, but it's absolutely true. Well, okay. You know, Amazon's published a bunch of my books and audible, which is Amazon's audiobook arm puts out my podcast. So um, I have, you know, obviously have some skin in that game, but I, I, even I wouldn't call them my dearest friend at the same time. <laughs> they're not. It's a corporation that I work with, and I like right, a lot of, yeah. I, and I like the people I work with at the corporation. But you know, but they have, um, you know, but they have sustained my career in a time when independent bookstores and and mainstream traditional publishers have refused to. So, where do you think my loyalties are going to lie? Right. Yeah. You know, and uh, I don't know. So I, that's a little bit off track from from the you know writers thinking that they're the avatar of the revolution. But I guess what I'm saying is that <laughs> what, what what I'm saying is that this literary class that we're talking about, they're really, you know, there's this kind of like bourgeois elitism, um, and it extends to all aspects of their political opinions and 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 the way they and what they talk about and what they believe is is proper and correct. Right. And one of the things I've always sort of liked about you is your um, frankness about the business side of publishing, where a lot of people try to, unless you're getting, unless you're getting a, the sort of a six or seven figure advance. And so then that advance becomes um, a huge part of your narrative as a writer. You know, all the stories are like, oh, this person got a million dollars. And so he's important, obviously. Um like people then don't talk about the business side of publishing, which I think allows for this sort of cravenness um, of uh, people presenting themselves as political heroes um, and not being sort of upfront about the business side of it and how they're profiting off of it. Um, whereas you have been very sort of, yeah, this is, this is how much money I made for this book and this is how many copies it sold. Um, you did that interview, was it with the AV Club or something? That yeah, it's just the, with The Onion. Yeah, I, it was one of the bravest author interviews, actually, that I've seen. Well, I, I just, I, I guess, I don't know. I was, it was a little terrifying for. I was like, I was a little scared to do it because I'm like, well, I'm going to talk about this stuff honestly. But I didn't have anything to lose at that point, honestly. I mean, my things had things had kind of fallen apart career wise. So um, I thought, well, why not? It, it can't hurt me. But I, what I think. But I've continued to talk about things that way, even though the situation has improved a little bit, because people need to recognize that this is a 
it, it's it's a grift, it's a hustle, it's a scam operation, and you are being worked by everyone, including George Saunders, including Michael Chabon, including Roxanne Gay, including Lauren Duca, including everyone who publishes books. You know, maybe not James Patterson. Like that guy, like you said, he makes enough money so that he can like operate his factory where he teaches you how to write a bestseller, you know. Mm-hmm. At that level, okay, you're not you're not being grifted, but you're you know, but you're being grifted by everyone else. And don't kid yourself. <laughs> <laughs> now that we've gone totally cynical, um, you know, are there sort of writers that you are admiring in this moment? Uh, yeah, I'm. Look, I uh, that's that's the thing is, even though business wise it's a grift, there's always great books being published. Um, you know, I. Uh, I, I almost hesitate to name writers I like around you, Jessa, because your opinions are so like you, you, you're you're even more critical than I am. But you know, yeah, yeah. I, I like you know I like Nell Zink's novels uh, a, a lot. She's really dry and cynical, and you know she she does things in kind of a surprising way. And um, you know those um, I, I'm trying to think what else I've been reading that I liked. I don't know. I thought Tampa. Tampa was was pretty fun and sexy and good and mm-hmm. weird, um, and, you know. Even on the more mainstream side of things, you know that new Colson Whitehead book was extremely skillfully done, um, and you know, and 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 I can see why it won the the, the prizes it did. You mm-hmm. know, um, I don't know. I mean, are there you know, the George Saunders book was good, of course. You know, he's not going to make it. He's he's not going to make any big mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. What 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 do you like? I mean, that that isn't by some like obscure like you know Hungarian lesbian playwright. <laughs> I, o- I only like obscure Hungarian lesbian yeah. playwrights. Yeah, I mean, I read a lot of mainstream novels, you know, because I want to see what 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 the zeitgeist is, and I find that most books tend to be about people in Brooklyn. Yeah. Um, <laughs> or or college friends with secrets or you know, college friends in Brooklyn with secrets, um, ghosts in Maine. Seems to be a lot of ghosts in Maine. Um, you know, genre fiction is always good. Like I like these Alan first books, these sort of like late, you know, pre-World War II espionage novels set in Europe. Every single one of those is good. Um, those Jeff Vandermeer books, the Southern reach trilogy and the new one he just published all that you know, post-apocalyptic stuff. That's a lot of that is, is, is pretty good. I don't know. Yeah. Um, does, it, does, does it, does it really matter? There was a book called evicted that was by an ethnographer who like right, embedded yeah. himself, embedded himself that, that, I mean, it, I felt like his solution, you know, more federal housing aid wasn't really going to go anywhere, but, uh, the, but the actual descriptions of the lives of actual poor people was, was I thought extremely moving and telling and, and, brilliantly detailed in a way that novels just don't do anymore. Yeah. And I feel like there's something about the failure of contemporary literature, um, or at least the sort of um, the majority of what's coming out from mainstream publishing um, has something to do in my mind with this sort of hashtag resistance thing, this Mm. desperate ploy for, um, um, well, relevance, but also um, 
online status and so on, it seems like there is some sort of awareness within the writing community that they are insulated from um, the so-called real world, which I think they just mean, you know, uh, middle America and poor people and so on. Um, and so taking on the sort of valiant role of the savior of America um, is there a way of not sort of dealing with the fact that they're in an insulated position, like not piercing that insulation, but instead just sort of pontificating from within it? You know, I mean, I hate Chapo Trap House so much. Um, and part part of the reason why I hate it so much, I think, is, you know, all those guys come from money. One of them is like the son of the president of Random House or whatever. The fuck. They don't ever talk about that. <laughs> right. Right. They're just celebrities. They're right. just a different. They're just a different kind of celebrity. Uh, yeah, exactly. Well, exactly. So, well, the part of the here's the problem is, is that you've got like, you know, the gritty reality on the ground is is observed by reporters who, but their uh, reporters are on deadline, and a lot of times they don't have the sort of literary skill or the time to put together a book or a TV pilot or whatever that's going to relay that. The people with the time and the skill don't have the experience. <laughs> so mm-hmm. that's why yeah. that's that's why you get a lot of novels about ghosts in Brooklyn, you know. Right. Yeah, and then yeah. yeah, and then you occasionally someone like David Simon will come along and and like have the time and the skill. And, yeah, and we don't and, have the uh, we don't have the day job um, writer anymore. No, uh, we don't have the the person you know like Lu- Lucia Berlin, who I th- think is brilliant and had a sort of mini revival recently who worked as like, you know, a waitress and a cleaning woman and, and so on, or, or the people who worked as reporters or the people who worked as, you know, bartenders or whatever. There's the professionalization of writing. Sure. Uh, this idea that if you're a writer, then that's, that's how you're supposed to make your money. It's <laughs> um, really yeah, taken I- over. Right, so you get a lot of essays that are like, recently when I was when I was on vacation, it occurred to me that I needed to call my editor. You know, there's like you see you see that kind of thing all the time, and I'm like, don't admit that, <laughs> don't <laughs> don't show your hand. At least bluff and pretend like you're an actual person. You know, come on, you know, yeah. And so yeah, exactly. So you, you so that that you you lose that 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 aspect of being in touch with reality. And that's part of the problem with this um, writers against Trump is there's a lot of problems with the Trump administration and, you know, you can read the journalism about it every day, but a lot of the stuff you read feels to me just as much of a fantasy as all the crazy anti Obama stuff that was coming out of the right for eight years. Mm hmm. Or at least as high, if not as much of a fantasy, and it's you know it's certainly not as steeped in racism as a lot of that anti-Obama stuff was. But at least it's it's got it's the hyperbolic nature of it, and the self-absorbed nature of it is just uh, to me just really really annoying, really annoying. And and to me, it it feels like a lot of it is is this sort of horror at his lack of. Uh, taste or class Trumps, mm. I mean. Yeah. Um, that they're seeing him as a sort of a more 
a pure form of evil than somebody like any, well, any of the other fucking Republicans um, that have ever held office. They, or, or Democrats. <laughs> or, right. or Or Whigs or anyone, right. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, again, he's very gauche. You know, there's no, right. <laughs> there's no, there's no way around it. You know, he's crude. He's, he's weird. <laughs> <laughs> he's gross. You know, he's, um, he, and uh, he, he, but he, um, you know, he's relatable to a lot of people. <laughs> the way he conducts himself, and and uh, and uh, you know. And Obama was too, but they're relatable to two different types of people. And that's what right. it comes down to. So. And Trump's also a sexual predator, but so have so and, many, so many of our politicians. Yeah, and he's a and he's a sexual predator, which I mean, and there is you know, and that, you know, I don't know. That may be where a lot of the the critique of him comes from, you know, and that's very valid, but then to extend it to the republic is in danger is i don't know a um is kind of is just not healthy so Mental, you don't think mental. we're you don't think we're living under tyranny then no <laughs> not really i mean to a little a, to to a, to a small to, to the extent that any government is tyranny i mean to a small you know i Yes. Am I living under Am I living under tyranny? No. I'm a I'm a middle class white homeowner in Texas. Of course, I'm not living un, under anything more tyrannical than high property taxes. But you know, I, I imagine if you're a, a you know a dreamer, or if you are someone in you know who's threatened by one of these hyper militarized police forces that Trump is building up. Yeah, I mean, you're living under tyranny, but. You were before Trump, too. Yes. So, I don't know. We're just kind of going around in circles. I really just like talking shit about other writers. <laughs> well, before we go, is there any particular writer that you would like to talk shit about at this at this particular time? Oh, God. Um, well, you know, it's always fun. To me, I was very gratified uh, by, the, by the poor reception that the new um, Jonathan Safran 4 novel received. <laughs> Here I am. Yeah, wrote, yeah. Which, which to me is like the ultimate title of, of a book written by the literary elite. Here I am. Um, <laughs> Estoy aquí when it was published in Spanish. Um, uh, yeah, and so you know that that there were a few nice reviews when it came out, but but that was obviously that was revealed to be log rolling and you know and it, it that was to me a great example of the emperor having new having no clothes it took you know it took a it took a decade and a half for people to realize it but um but the truth has been revealed and there's there, there's no going back now so um i found i i found that gratifying and even like yes in in the long run you know, will his books have sold more copies than mine, and will he be better remembered than me? Yes, probably, but but I'll know the truth, and I'll die happy. <laughs> All right, I think we should stop there. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I worry a little bit that, um, you know, every time I get sort of hopeful about... Um, the 
sort of new era of political awareness and writing and that sort of thing, but which is also sort of taking down these um, sort of lazy uh, Brooklyn white guy writers um, in the wake of that. You know, I worry, obviously it's just going to put someone equally terrible in the position of power and, um, uh, yeah, I want to kill my hope. I want to kill my hope is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. I would say Jessa, that when it comes to writers, never get your hopes up. (laughs) They're always, they're all, they're always going to disappoint you. You just have to attend one book festival. Yeah. (laughs) You know? party <laughs> that's all that that's all you need to do to learn the truth yeah yeah i don't know is there um, gonna be is there gonna i mean was there ever a glorious day of, of political awareness and maybe post-world war one there was a little bit of you know there there was there was a little bit of a working class grit to the american novel and it has you know sort of pre-television pre-talking pictures that had a sort of centrality to the culture and irrelevance um but uh you know come on this is 2017 you know the dominant medium of communication is snapchat yeah um not the novel (laughs) so no and it's probably i think you know after reading the last 30 years of of american literature you know i think i think it's earned its place of marginalized influence yeah, reading a novel. Yeah, for the most part, reading a novel is like going to the ballet. It, it, it's it's yeah. an art. It's an art form, and it can be done well, and it should be maintained, and it should be appreciated. But but let's not let's not kid ourselves. But that's what writers do. They kid themselves into believing that they're important, so they can just get through the day. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's nice to talk to you. Yeah, it was nice to talk to you. I hope uh, I hope this generates a lot of uh, hatred. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think you you and I talking shit about other writers. That's you know that's a that's a kind of a sweet spot right there. Forever dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Joe dog. Cilio, Alex Ramsey, and Brett Boehm. For more podcasts, please visit foreverdogproductions.com. Dog.